presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our fourth in our, uh, of our studies in our series on what it means to be saved by grace. And so perhaps we'll do well to begin today the way we usually do, and that is by looking at what really is the key passage for this series. And that's uh, the first uh, little passage that's written in the box there on your outline. So we'll just read that together. And it re- Paul writes, and this is a translation uh, from the New International Version, it is for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And what we've been doing for about the last two or three weeks is we've looked on the basis of Romans chapter 8, the unbreakable chain of God's salvation. We're trying to understand salvation from start to finish. What does it really mean to be saved by grace? And we know that the word grace means what? Yeah, the unmerited favor of God. In fact, because we are sinners, what we really merit from God is what? Yeah, nothing. Uh, In fact, what we merit is his judgment, his wrath, because we are sinners. But salvation is by grace. God is giving us something in salvation, not on the basis of what we deserve, but simply on the basis of another reason, and simply because we love him. And God uses faith as a means to achieve that end. And that's one of the things we're going to be talking about today. But we said that there are five links that Paul talks about there in... uh, in Ephesians chapter, I'm sorry, in uh, Romans chapter 8, when he talks about uh, salvation, he says that uh, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to, come, to become conformed to the image of his Son. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, the fascinating thing about that is that glorification means we are exactly like Christ. That's that's what it's going to be like when we are with Jesus. And yet, the Apostle Paul, in writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit, uses the past tense because just as surely as God has chosen us for himself, he's going to bring it to pass. Now, the first two things that, uh, that Paul mentions, and this is what we've talked about the last couple of weeks, has to do with, uh, with divine election. And that is that God has chosen out a people for himself. And we said that the word uh, for knowledge has to do with persons, that God has chosen certain persons uh, that he intends to save. Now, what is the basis of God's choosing those persons? Is it because they're nicer than anybody else? No. Is it because they're more deserving than anybody else? The answer is no. 
It's simply on the basis of the good, it's the good pleasure of God to do that. And remember that the key phrase in for no is the word no, because no, K-N-O-W, means more than simple cognizance. What does it infer, we've said in the past? Yeah, intimacy, that God knew us, God loved us, that God loved his people, those whom he had chosen to show mercy and grace on. He loved them before time, and predestination really doesn't have to do with destination. It, it sounds like it would, but when you read the scriptures where the term is used, it, it, it doesn't say a person is predestined to heaven or a person is predestined to hell. It says that they are predestined to conformity to Christ's image. And what we discover is that the word predestination, while the word foreknowledge has to do with persons, the word predestination has to do with God's purpose, and that is that God's purpose from all eternity was to choose out a people for himself whom he could redeem, whom he could make like time, and uh, whom he could make like Christ, and all of this happens in eternity. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1. We see it mentioned again in Ephesians 2. At least there's a reference to it. We see it in Romans chapter 8. It's throughout the scriptures. Then, in the course of time, time and space, we see God doing something else. We see those whom he chose to have mercy on, to have grace on, he effectually calls to himself. Now, how does God call people to himself? We talked about that last week. Anybody remember? What is the means that God uses for calling people to himself? Yeah, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the effectual call, which makes it work. What is the means that God uses? His, his word, that's right. God calls us. Uh, there's, the, there's the Holy Spirit uh, using the word of God who brings us to himself. And then having brought us to himself, and we're going to talk about the outworking or the effects of the divine calling uh, we're going to talk about three of those today. Regeneration. What does the word regenerate mean? Well, that's close. To make over, that's close. But what, what if... Renew. To renew is the idea of bringing to life, to regenerate. When we talk about these were the generations of Adam, we're talking about his offspring, those that were brought to life, to regenerate is to bring to life again, which infers that at least at some point somewhere there was life, but that life has gone. We're going to talk about regeneration, and we're going to talk about repentance and faith, and how all of that fits into the calling of God. And then having done that, next week we'll talk about what it means to be justified. We'll talk about the basis of God's declaring us to be righteous in Christ. How is it that God can acquit sinners? How is it that God cannot punish sinners? Well, the only way that that can happen is if God has punished their sin in someone else. And for Christians, that means what? Yeah, he's punished their sin in Christ, and we are justified through faith in Christ. And then when we eventually get to glorification, and that will be the, near the end of our study, we see that that's taking place again uh, in eternity, and that's when God 
completely transforms us into the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. During this time, uh, while we're on this earth, if we belong to Him, we are supposed to be growing more and more and more like Jesus every day. But will we ever be perfect in this life? And the answer is no, we will not. If you don't believe it, just stick a pin in somebody and see what happens. The fact is, is that it's only in eternity that we'll come to be the way the Lord Jesus really is. So that's, that's kind of where we've been going and a little bit about where we're going to continue to go. Today I want us to focus on regeneration, repentance, and faith. How they tie in to this effectual call that we talked about. We said that there are two types, we said last week, and again just by way of review, that the Bible talks about there are basically two callings. One of them is to a task. The Apostle Paul said he was called to be an apostle. That was a task. Some of us are called to be plumbers. Some of us are called to be mechanics. Some of us are called to be homemakers. Others of us are called to other, other kinds of callings. That was one of the great truths that was rediscovered during the time of the Reformation. Luther really came to grips with that. The other calling that the Bible talks about is to salvation, where God calls people to himself. But we saw that in terms of the calling to salvation, there are also two that we can uh, talk about here. One is the general call of the gospel. That's the universal call, and that's done by how? How does the universal call go out? Everybody. What is the Great Commission? What are we supposed to do? Yeah, some people would say, well, the Great Commission is 100%. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the Great Commission is that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to whom? To everybody. To everybody. That's the general call of the gospel. But we saw last week that the problem with that is not a problem with the gospel. Where does the problem lie? It lies with us. That's right, it lies with us because the Bible says that our hearts are hostile toward God, that our minds do not understand the things of the Spirit of God, and because of that, the Bible says in Romans 3 and following, there's none who seeks after God. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. They have all gone their own way. Charles Haddon Spurgeon of the last century said, what good is a whosoever will in a world where nobody will. And yet the Bible clearly tells us that we are to go and to preach the gospel to everyone. Well, if man and woman's heart, if mankind, humankind's heart is so hard, and if their minds are so set against God, then what is it that makes it work? What is it then that brings us to salvation? We said the answer to that is the effectual call. And what's the effectual call? That's when God, by His Spirit, through the ministry of the Word, makes the whole thing alive to us. And when we're talking about making alive, we're talking about regeneration. So that's where we want to begin today. Man's, man's spiritual condition, apart from a relationship with God in Christ, is what? Hmm? What is man's condition apart from? Yeah, in sin, 
And so the Bible says that he is dead in trespasses and sins. What kind of response do you normally get from dead people? You don't get any response from a dead person. So the question arises, if people who don't know Christ, that is the unsaved person, if a person, and we're all born, the Bible says, dead in sin. We're born that way. We grow up that way. We're dead in our sins until God does something in our lives. If we are dead in our sins, how is it that we can possibly respond to God? Well, the answer to that is in the effectual call and in, the re and in regeneration. That is, that God brings us to life. And that's what we want to talk about first here. Basically, and again, I refer you to your notes. If you don't have some, there's some on the table back there. There are basically two different and yet related meanings of the word regeneration. I'll mention the second one first there in your outline where it has to do with the renewal of the entire universe. Uh, and there's a quotation there from Matthew chapter 19 uh, in the New American Standard Bible, verse 28, where it says, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me, that's the eleven, Judas by then was gone, you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. When will that be? New heavens and a new earth. That's what he's talking about there. When everything has been made new. We said the word regeneration means to bring to life, to make new. In the regeneration, then he said to his apostles, you'll sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Interestingly enough, that's the only time that that, that word is used in the New Testament in that way. Notice the other meaning of the, or the other usage of the word and that's uh, under number one, where it means a renewal of spiritual life in a person. In other words, this refers to being born again, to the new birth experience. And I quote this time from 1 Peter 1, verse 3, where Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What's, what is, what's the inference of the word that God has caused us to be born again? What, what, what does that mean? What does it mean that God's caused it? We can't do it on our own. You're exactly right. We are incapable of doing it on our own, and it's up to God, and that's what we were talking about on, this, on the other side of the board that we see from eternity, this has been God's plan to, uh, to work this out. All right, let's see what else. Uh, and the reason, and I don't want to belabor this, but it's real important that we grasp it, the reason that regeneration is necessary is because of the human condition. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and verse 5, that we are dead in trespasses and sins. If you go out here to one of the uh, to one of the mortuaries, and you stand over an open casket and you look down in the casket and you say, "Brother Bill, if you just believe that you can get out of there, you can get out of there." What kind of response are you going to get from Brother Bill? You're not going to get one because it's impossible for a dead person to respond. 
I think this is what's so difficult for us to comprehend because somehow we've gotten in our minds that people apart from Christ are not dead. We think simply that they are sick. We say it's, it's kind of like the, the, the bringing the gospel to them is sort of like throwing out the lifeline, throwing out the, uh, the flotation device. And we say, Brother Bill, if you just grab that life preserver, you'll be okay. But what's Brother Bill's problem? He's dead. He can't grab life preservers. We said, well, it's, it's, again, it's kind of like being sick. It's, it's like taking medicine. There you are on the sick bed, and oh, you feel real bad. And the, and the gospel is kind of the prescription, and God's already given us the prescription to get well, and the prescription's sitting over there on the night table. And all you've got to do is just reach over there and take that medicine and unscrew the top and shake out a couple of pills and take them, and you'll be just fine. But what's the problem with that? The person in the bed is not sick. The person in the bed is dead. Not only are they dead, they hate the physician who wrote the prescription. And not only do they hate the physician, they don't trust the physician, so they wouldn't take his prescription in the first place. So how do you deal with it? Well, God has to work and cause us to be born again. Uh, notice, again, in your outline under part... Uh, Two there, B, uh, number two, that the unregenerate intellect, and when we talk about unregenerate, that's not a derogatory word, that's a, bi that's a biblical term, and it just means the unsaved person. The unre unregenerate human intellect is opposed to God. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that I've put in your notes there. It says, the man without the spirit, and the spirit there refers to what? The Holy Spirit. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot. What, is, what does the word cannot indicate? Yes, cannot means an inability. Why is he unable? Because he's dead. Dead people can't do it. That's the reason God has to cause it to happen. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. When you put that whole thing in reverse, let's just, uh, let's just do that for a minute. Sometimes that'll help kind of clarify things. Here's a person who is dead in trespasses and sins. That's the way... The Bible describes that person. Because they are dead in trespasses and sins, they are unable to understand the things of the Spirit of God. Now, if you don't understand things, how likely are you to get involved in things? No, you're not. When we don't understand things, 1 Corinthians that we just read says we see those things are seen as foolish. And if we think something is foolish, are we going to get involved with it? The answer is no, we'll not. And if we see it as foolish, then we don't accept it. What we do is we reject it. That's the point that, uh, that the Apostle Paul is making in this passage right here. Not only is the unregenerate 
human intellect opposed to God, but you'll notice also that unregenerate human will is opposed to God. And I put in your outline there uh, the verses from Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Paul writes there, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. What does the word hostile mean? When you hear the word hostile, what, kind, what sort of imagery do you get? Against. What's another word? Opposition. Another. Violent, antagonistic. There are just any number of words. It says the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Notice again. It does not subject itself to the law of God. Why? What does the next phrase say? It's not able to do so. Again, we go back to the whole idea that a person apart from Christ, a person who is dead in their sins, is spiritually unable to respond. The Bible is replete with verses that indicate this. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You say, well, wait, 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 wait a minute, Bradshaw. Are you saying that, uh, that people who don't know Jesus can't do nice things? No, I'm not saying that at all. Because we know that there are people who don't know Christ, who don't have any allegiance to Christ, who are very philanthropic, who do lots of nice things for the community. We know that there are people, even within the context of our churches, who, for whatever reason, maybe don't have a relationship with Christ, but do lots of nice stuff for the churches. But the point is, and the point that Paul is making, is that those things don't please God. They may please us. They may please the community. But there's no way that we can ingratiate ourselves with God. After all, we go back to our key verse for the series, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And what does it say? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And then what's the next phrase? not as a result of works that no one could boast. If it were as a result of works, then when we get to heaven, Jesus, you sure are lucky to have me because here's what I did and here's what I did and then somebody else would pop up over here and they'd say, oh, Bradshaw doesn't have anything to talk about. Look at all the stuff I did. But God says, no, it's all level. It has nothing to do with our works. It has everything to do with the grace and the mercy of God. So we can see that the problem is the deadness of our souls. That's the reason we need to be regenerated. Now Jesus taught Nicodemus about that uh, in John chapter 3. Who was Nicodemus anyway? What kind of fellow was he? Yeah, he came by night. That's right. But who, who was he? What position did he hold in the community? What, no, wasn't a tax collector, but he, he held a high position. Well, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was kind of the ruling elders. He was a Pharisee. Now, how well did Pharisees know the Bible? We're talking about the Old Testament in this case because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So here's a guy who comes along, and he really knows the Old Testament. I mean, he knows it inside and out. He can quote the verses for you. He knows everything there is to know about it. Here's the interchange between him and Jesus. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin, the 70. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, now Rabbi, the word Rabbi means teacher. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. 
In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now, when we use the term see, the immediate thing that comes to our mind is some sort of uh, uh, something visible. What also does the word see? When, uh, when you tell me something and I say, I can't see that, what does that mean? Don't understand it. It has to do with understanding. So seeing can be something visible, but it can also mean can also have something to do with being able to understand. Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. No one can see. No one can understand the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And literally, that means to be born from above. And Nicodemus' response is this. How can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, there's a problem in the conversation right here. They've got a communication problem. Jesus is talking about what? He's talking about something spiritual. What is Nicodemus talking about? He's talking about something physical. So you've got two different planes going on here. That's usually what happens in our conversation with our significant other anyway. He says, uh, Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now, water in the Scriptures is a metaphor for the Bible, for the Scriptures. When Jesus says you must be born of the water and the Spirit, what's he talking about? The water represents, the, I've erased it now, represents the general call of the gospel. There has to be the means, the Word of God, but there also has to be the effectual call of the Spirit. You say, now you're reaching that. Well, let's just keep reading. He has to be born of water and the Spirit. Flesh, that is, flesh is motivated by the fallen human nature. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Remember what Paul wrote in Galatians 5? He said the works of the flesh, and then he just gave this long laundry list of all these terrible things that emerge from the flesh. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. And then he uses uh, the imagery of the wind. And it's fascinating that in the Scriptures, the word for Spirit and the word for wind are the same word. It's the word pneuma. What word do we get from pneuma? Yeah, pneumonia. What, what is pneumonia? the disease of the lungs, of the airways. What is a pneumatic tire? One that has air in it. My, my, on the lawnmower, it's not a pneumatic tire, it's a plastic tire. He's talking about pneuma. It's filled with wind, filled with air. So the spirit is like that. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so is everyone who's born of the spirit. Now, so he's making the point that in order to even understand the things of the Spirit of God, God has got to do something by His Spirit to take this deadness from our souls. I think one of the clearest illustrations from the physical realm, and this is just simply to uh, illustrate what we're talking about in terms of the spiritual realm, is seen in, uh, in John chapter 11, uh, from the story of Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha of Beth Bethany. And they were real good friends with Jesus. And one day, 
The sisters sent word to Jesus who was over on the other side of the Dead Sea preaching and healing and carrying on his ministry. He said, ooh, Lazarus, man you love, is sick and you need to get over here quick. And Jesus kind of dilly-dallied around. And by the time he got back over to Bethany, what had happened? Lazarus had died. In fact, he'd been dead for four days. What can you do with dead folks but bury them? That's what you do. Now notice what it says in John 11, 38 through 44. Jesus, once more deeply moved. He's gone out to the cemetery now. He came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Now most of us don't say that when we go to cemeteries. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been there for four days. But Jesus said, then Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. Guess what Lazarus did? He came out. Now, suppose Jesus had stood outside the cemetery and just yelled, Come out. What would have happened? Everybody would have been coming out right then. The Bible says, and I put this uh, note in your, uh, the reference in your notes there in, from John chapter 10. Jesus called Lazarus by name. God always calls his own by name. John 10, verses 2 through 4. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. And we should contrast that, this is not in your notes, but we should contrast that with Matthew chapter 7, where you remember Jesus is talking to some people one day in the course of his ministry, and he says, many are, are going to come to me on that day, that great day of judgment. And they're going to say, Lord, hadn't we cast out demons and performed all kind of mighty miracles? And the Lord never disputes that that happened. But he says, but I will say to them, depart from me, you evil ones, because I never knew you. Never knew you. See, he calls his own by name. That's what he did with Lazarus. Now that's in the physical. What happens in the effectual call, what happens in regeneration, is that we, somewhere along the line, are exposed to the gospel of Christ. It may be through a little gospel tract. It may be through the preaching of some preacher. It may be like in Charles Haddon Spurgeon's day, that great Baptist preacher of, uh, of London, that one day, and it was before he came to know the Lord, he was just uh, walking down the street, and because of the inclement weather, he couldn't get to the church where he usually went. And he went into a primitive Methodist church, and a guy who spent all of his time either doing something like working on shoes, he was sort of a lay preacher, and he preached a chopped up kind of sermon, but in that chopped up kind of sermon, even though it was not eloquent by any means, the gospel was in there, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon's heart was changed. God regenerated him at that time. He brought him to life through 
the means of the gospel, but it was the Spirit of God saying, Spurgeon, you're alive. And bringing him to life. And his life changed dramatically at that point. So we see, just in summary, that regeneration is a supernatural work of God. Humans are passive. Tell me this. How much did you have to do with, uh, with your being born into this world? You say, come on, Mom, get with it. Just mm, mm, about three more times. and I'm more We didn't do any of that. We weren't coaching Mom from the womb, were we? We had nothing to do with it. You know, if anything, we were antagonistic to it. We see one of the things that babies arrive with in the world is there's a certain amount of fear because all of a sudden that warm environment where they've heard the mother's heart beating for all of those, all of a sudden that's gone. And it's a little frightening to them. And they're, they're a little bit afraid of that kind of thing. We have nothing to do with our birth into this world. We have nothing to do with our supernatural birth into the kingdom of God. It's a work of the Spirit of God. And it's instantaneous. It happens in a moment. It's not a process. The process that we face later on, and we'll be talking about this over the next, uh, starting about two weeks from now, is the process of sanctification where we gradually are being made uh, into the image of Christ. We're going to talk about what all of that means. But what happens is when God regenerates us, it causes a radical change in our lives. And the word radical, those of you who remember your old Latin from high school, the word radical comes from the Latin word radix, which means root. When God regenerates us, when he brings us to life spiritually, he does something at our roots. He doesn't work from the outside in. He starts on the inside and it works out in our lives. The Bible, in fact, I put in your notes there, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, where Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Does that mean this person is totally new? No, doesn't mean that at all. Because we're not going to be totally new until we are with Jesus himself in eternity. But it does mean that we are genuinely new. That we genuinely, deep down inside, God has planted his, a new nature in our hearts. He's given us a new heart. He's put his law in our minds. We're going to talk about that when we talk about justification as well. Now, so regeneration occurs. We've seen that. that. When the effectual call comes to us, some of us, perhaps all of us have, in this room have experienced that. The first thing that happens is regeneration. And why does it have to be the first thing that happens? Because, that's right, apart from Christ, we are dead. Our primary need is to be brought to life. God brings us to life. He regenerates us. All, right, all of a sudden, through whatever means that God uses, whether it's a gospel preacher or some radio or TV preacher or whether it's reading a gospel tract, or we sit out, I, I was sitting one day years ago in my den and uh, I was not interested in becoming a Christian, but I was intrigued by my boss who was a Christian and he had the ability to point out lots of stuff in the Bible. And I thought, man, alive, I'd like to be able to do stuff like that. 
had no desire to want to change. I liked the lifestyle I was living. And I was reading the Bible, and all of a sudden, God just made the words come alive to me. I was regenerated at that point. Now, when we're regenerated, there are some things that happen to us contemporaneously with that. Those things are repentance and faith. Now, you can't put a priority. You say, well, which comes first, repentance or faith? Well, you can't really say because they both really happen at exactly the same time. And we're going to talk about what each of those means. We're going to talk about them sort of, sort of briefly. Uh, and repentance and faith basically are the two components of what you and I sometimes refer to as conversion. When a person is converted, when they come to Christ, what is it that happens? Well, they've been regenerated. They convert to Christ. They, uh, the word con means with, verso means to turn, to turn with. We're turning toward Christ. And the two components of conversion are repentance and faith. Well, what do those things mean? Well, repentance is a real important thing. John the baptizer preached repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came on the scene. First thing he started preaching was repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. We see the apostles preaching the same thing. The, the uh, repentance, what does it mean to repent? There are two Greek words and we don't need to necessarily know what they mean. But the gist of what they mean is that there's a change of mind. Basically, the word repentance at its, uh, at its root meaning means to change the mind. Now, if you really, really change your mind about things, what happens to your behaviors? They change. Can you change your behaviors without changing your mind? Sure you can. We all do it. We say, well, getting Dunlop disease here because my belly done lopped over my belt, so I'm going to just peel off a few pounds so I can get in my Sunday go-to-meeting Easter outfit when the time comes. And so we change our behaviors, and soon as Easter's passed, and uh, we don't need that, uh, that yellow polyester coat anymore, uh, we're not going to need it for another year. What do we usually do? Yeah, we go right, I said, hot dog, man, we can go to Mickey D's for lunch today. I'm feeling great. With repentance, we're talking about a change of mind that results in a change in behaviors. Our lifestyle begins to change. Notice the summary there under Roman numeral, numeral 3, uh, part B. And uh, 1B3, summary, repentance is turning away from sin and toward God, resulting in a complete change of lifestyle. And there are, some, there are some aspects of repentance that we can kind of isolate, although you, well, isolate's a bad word. We can distinguish various aspects of repentance. You can't really isolate them from one another. We said that, for the unsaved person, they've got a, their, their intellect, their mind is hostile toward God. They have a turning away from God. But in repentance, notice what happens. There's a recognition of our sinfulness. There's a recognition of the majesty of God. And we, like Isaiah, and that's the reference I put in there, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on his throne in a vision and his, and listen, this guy's a believer. 
He's, his immediate response is, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When God regenerates us by His Spirit, what happens inside of us is, first of all, there's a recognition. We see ourselves for the sinners that we are. We say, Oh God, like Isaiah, we say, I'm undone. What a wretched person I am. Now, I might, you know, I might not be a pedophile or something like that. But the point is, is that I'm trying to run my own life. And I see God for who He is in His majesty and in His holiness and in His righteousness. And I say, oh, God, have mercy on me. You say, now, would that have happened before I was regenerated? No, not at all. That's because God has turned on the lights. There's an emotional aspect uh, as well. There's a heartfelt sorrow for sin. You see, there's a difference between repentance and remorse. The word repentance means to change your mind with a view to changing your behaviors as well. What does the word remorse mean? What is remorse? Sorry. Sorry about what, usually? Yeah, sometimes we're sorry about what we're doing. More often than not, we're sorry we got caught. Uh, repentance means a genuine sorrow over this. I have, what I have done is an offense to God who is holy. Remorse is just, nah. I got caught again. Notice Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where he talks about his first letter that he wrote. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, that would be 1 Corinthians, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, what I call remorse, brings death. Repentance is not just being sorry over our sins. It is that, but it's not just that. It's a recognition that we have, we have offended holy God. And it also means a change in our motivation that now we see that we need to take up our cross daily and follow Christ. Who wants to do that? Well, we only want to do that if God has changed our lives. That's an important point. But there's also faith. What does it mean to have faith? And faith in what? Faith in whom? Well, specifically, faith in Christ. Repentance toward God and faith in Christ. What does it mean to have faith in Christ? I've summarized that in your outline by saying faith basically is the acceptance of the apostolic testimony regarding Christ. That means who He is, that He is God who has come in the flesh, that His work on the cross did everything that needed to be done to save us, that my works, any works that I might do, add absolutely zero to the finished work of Christ. And it means a personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is more than just mere intellectual assent. It's not just giving saying, yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that all that stuff is true. See, a lot of us, particularly in the Bible Belt, 
You talk to folks and you talk about being saved, you talk about being spirit-filled, and what will folks do? They'll sit there and they'll just they'll rock their head like one of those little dogs in the back of a of a ten year old automobile like this. They'll because they understand. That's yeah, they understand the lingo at least. But it's more than just saying, yeah, 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 that's right. The point is, is that our lives really do change. I want to read you something and uh, from one of Charles Wesley's hymns, and it's one of my very favorite hymns, uh, entitled, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? Uh, most of us remember the first verse, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain for me, who Him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? But I want you to notice the verse that some of our hymnals even omit. <clears throat> but I've got one in my office that doesn't. Here he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's regeneration. That's repentance. That's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May God work that in all of our lives as well. One last warning in the last half minute or so that we have. There is sometimes apparent faith when there's not actual faith. Jesus tells a story of four different kind of soils and seed that was thrown out by a sower they fell on four different kind of soils. The one that fell on the road never did anything. Bah, we know that was not a saved person. The one that fell in the good soil brought forth all kinds of fruit. We know that was a saved person. But there were two soils in the middle Jesus talked about. Some of it, some of that seed fell in rocky places and it grew up and it looked like it had the real McCoy. There was other that fell uh, among the, the weeds and it grew up, but eventually it was choked out. There was apparent life, but not actual life. Do we really know that we know Him? The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What great, marvelous salvation we have in God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Next week, we'll talk about justification and the basis of justification. How is it that God can acquit us of our sins. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.